In our uh, nation of fast foods and quick fixes, the uh, great hope of Americans is overnight change. Many of us are too impatient to uh, wait on things and uh, too lazy to work long and hard to try to make something happen. So, you know, I, I guess the point is, is that, you know, many of us want what we want when we want it, and we want it now, and uh, that leads us to get into all kind of, uh, you know, these uh, fix-it-quick formulas. You know, it, you see on TV all the time, you know, the, the, the quick diet, you know, lose 30 pounds in three days kind of a diet, you know, without amputating any limbs, you know, that type of thing. You know, you see that type of stuff all the time. It's take a pill and, you know, in 30 days, you know, the 15 years worth of bad diet's going to go away. And, uh, or, or we see people that, you know, the instant get rich quick formulas. We see those all the time. I watched on the news last night. You know, it's like, how, like when is someone going to finally figure out what a pyramid scheme is all about? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, give me a break. You know, and, and, and they resurface all the time because we have a desire to try to fix things instantly. And as a result, like P.T. Barnum always said, he said, you know, if you can put together a package and you can tell somebody they can have instant transformation or instant something, there's always a sucker that'll bite out at any time. And so that's what we're looking for is that instant transformation. And it reminds me of a story that I heard not too long ago that I think we'll all appreciate in light of what we're going to talk about. But the story goes that there was a man who grew up in the sticks in West Virginia. I mean, this guy grew out so far back in the sticks. You know, he never saw a big city, never saw modern inventions, never saw lighting. He never saw any of the things that all of us has grown up and have become accustomed to. And he married a gal that was from the same area. And over a period of time, they finally had a child and they creatively named this little boy Junior. And uh, so their, their pa and ma and junior lived out in the sticks in West Virginia for a long period of time. Well, the boy turned 16 years of age, and the father started to worry that he wouldn't be prepared, you know, for the life that he had ahead of him because he saw that eventually this boy was going to have to go into the city to make a living because it was no longer possible to stay where they were and do the things that they did up to that point to survive. And so they knew they were going to go into the city one day, so they started to save their money. And uh, sure enough, three years later, they saved enough money, and what their game plan was was to take Junior into the city and to show him all the sights of a big city so he'd be better prepared to handle it the day that he moved there to work and try to make a living. Well, anyway, they threw all the stuff in the old pickup truck, and they headed off into the city. And as they were getting close to the city and they could see the lights in the distance, Pa was a little afraid of what was going to happen, and he told Ma, I said, listen, Ma, Junior and I are going to go into the hotel and we're going to look around, we're going to check it out, we're going to make sure everything's safe, and then we'll come back out and get you. You just wait in the truck for us. And she said, okay. So they pull up to the swanky hotel. She sits in the truck. Junior and Pa go into the hotel. They go in, there's a doorman. They walk in the door, and the first thing they see is a chandelier that's hanging three stories high, and their mouths just drop, and they gape, and they're looking. It's like, wow, the first time they'd ever seen it. And Pa's looking around, and he's going, Junior, look over here. And there's an old big indoor mall, and people are walking and shopping, and there's all kind of activity going on. And Junior looks over, and Junior, as he looks over, he goes, Pa, look down here. And he looks over, and there's people are ice skating inside the building in the middle of the summertime. And they're just in awe of everything that's happening. And they hear a noise in the background, and they hear, you know, uh, some dinging, and, and, and they turn around, and they look, and they see this, this, this contraption where there's lighting above it, and, and there's a lights go on, and then all of a sudden the door opens up from the middle, and people get on, and then the door shut behind them, and then, you know, it, it goes, and people get off and on, and they're looking at this thing going, man, what in the world's this? And they're all excited about it. So sure enough, as they turn around the next time, they see this little old lady in a walker going up to this particular contraption. She pushes the button. She gets in, there's no one else with her, the door's shut. 15, 20 seconds later, the door's open, and out comes the most gorgeous woman that Pa and Junior have ever seen in their life. 
She is just in her 20s and just looks great, and she's dressed to kill. And, and, and Pa looks at it and looks at Junior and says, Junior, quick, go get Mama out of the truck. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of us are like that. It's like, oh, you know, maybe that'll be my new Mother's Day story. Man, maybe not either. <laughs> but we're all looking for that. You know, we're all looking for that door where we can get in and instant transformation. And some of us are getting a little bit frustrating and frustrated with this series that's been designed to help increase the joy in our life because it's just not happening fast enough. And the reason it's not happened fast enough is because all along throughout this series, we're looking for some little magic room that Pa thought he, that he found that he could stick Mama in and everything would change overnight. And it just doesn't happen that way. Because there are some things in life that take time. It takes time to cultivate character. It takes time to learn how to choose to have joy in the midst of circumstances. And what it also takes is a whole bunch of different circumstances to be thrown on our face to challenge us, to test us, to find out if we really want to have joy in our life or not. And that's how you develop joy. That's how you choose joy. But it doesn't happen overnight. And throughout this session, what I want to basically explain to you is really the secret of a joyful life. Everything that we've discussed up to this date, what we're going to talk about today is the one secret of entering into a joyful life. The one thing, more than anything else that we've discussed to date, that'll change our life if we apply it and if we understand it. It's the most important thing that we could talk about. You know, I've been talking a lot about choosing joy, and on several occasions I've mentioned the value of our attitude. Really, choosing joy is a matter of our attitude. And, uh, and I think it also, as we'll see, is the secret of a joyful life. It's a matter of our attitude. And so I looked up in the dictionary, defining the word attitude, and this is what it said. You know, because one of, what I found is this. You know, have you ever, we use that term often. Hey, you know what? I really like your attitude. You hear people say things like that all the time. Hey, do you like it? You know, I like her attitude. Or I like this one even better. You better change that attitude, boy. <laughs> you better change that attitude, young lady. I don't like that attitude now. You better change your attitude. And we use this all the time. And it's like, well, what are we talking about? The definition of attitude is a manner of acting, feeling, or thinking that shows one's disposition. It's opinion, uh, one's disposition, opinion, men mental set. It means that how we think determines how we respond to others. The reason we tell someone, I don't like your attitude, is because I can see what you're thinking, even though you're not saying what you're thinking, because you know if you say what you think, you're even more trouble than just showing it on your face. You ever been there? So when we're telling someone, I don't like your attitude, it's because I already know what you're thinking. And if you felt the freedom to say what you were thinking, then we'd even go even farther about how far I don't like exactly what it is that's going on. So, we, you know, it's like we, we wrestle with that. And I found that my attitude, my own mental disposition, has a lot to do with how I respond to others. For example, one man writes this. He says, our attitude toward the world around us depends upon what we are ourselves. If we are selfish, we will be suspicious of others. If we are of generous nature, we will likely be more trustful. If we're honest with ourselves, we won't always be anticipating deceit in the lives of others. If we are inclined to be fair, we won't feel that we're being cheated. In a sense, looking at people around you is like looking into a mirror. You see a reflection of yourself. And I think that's true. If attitude is so important, it's critical that we ask the question, if it holds the secret, if our attitude holds the secret of a joyful life, I guess the question is what kind of attitude should we cultivate? What type of attitude should we develop and nurture? 
And so I've gone through and I, I've done a word study and looking up all the different, the, the different times that attitude is used in the Bible. Specifically, what I was looking at is you look at the life of Jesus and you try to decide what was it about his life. You know, we, we see his commercials all the time. I want to be like Mike. You know what I mean? The, the, the uh, Michael Jordan commercials. I want to be like Mike. Well, for every person that knows Jesus Christ, really the commercial should be, I want to be like Jesus. And the best place to find out what he's like is to study his life and to see how he responded in different situations. And frankly, I'll tell you what, I'm amazed at how he responded to people around him. And I think it often had to do with his attitude or his own mental disposition. What he thought of himself and knew of himself was reflected in the way he responded to others. You know, think about how many times, I mean, how could you stay cool under the constant fire that he, that he went through? How could you maintain, you know, your sanity when you had people all around you who were trying to say that you were insane? I mean, how could he not? I mean, I read through and I look at the Pharisees and the things that they did and the stuff that they said about him. They called him every dirty name in the book. And I look at what they said and it's like, how could he not just jack him up one time and just smack him upside the head? But he just didn't do that. You know, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that Jesus ever responded to others that way. And so all of this brings to an interesting question. What is the most, little, little banter here, what is the most Christ-like attitude that you can have on the face of the earth? Love. Love. Obviously, he loved people. He demonstrated by the way that he lived. Forgiveness, to be able to forgive others. Um, what? Servant. He was a servant. Humility, humility. We hear humility used a couple of times. You know what's interesting? There's only one time in all the Bible where Jesus describes himself. And this is what he says. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, lean and learn from me. For, listen, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Did you catch his self-description? He says this, I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Gentle or meek. Meekness does not mean weakness. We need to understand that there are many people who stereotype Christians as being milk-toasty, wimpy kind of people. And that's not true. Meekness is actually strength under control. He says that I was gentle, I was meek, I was strong, I was under control, but I was also humble in heart. He had humility in his heart. In a word, it would be unselfishness. Because Jesus was so unselfish, the only person that he thought about was the other person, which is fascinating. As you look through this in the secret of a joyful life, it's all going to be found in the fact that we all need to develop an attitude of humility or an attitude of unselfishness. Think about this for a moment. Someone who is truly unselfish is generous in all of, the, all of his or her possessions. Not only of possessions, also of time, of energy, of resources, considering the other person more important than themselves. When a husband's unselfish, you know, he sets aside his own wants and desires for that which is the in the best interest of his family. You know, when a mother's unselfish, she isn't irked and irritated by all the demands of her children. She sets aside her own desires for those of the needs of her children. You know, when a player, on a, on an, when an athlete is unselfish, he sacrifices personal ambition and, and those desires that he has, and he sets it aside for the best interest of what's best for this team. 
And I've seen many athletes over my days who understood that. It's, hey, you know what, I'll, whatever position you want to put me in, if that's what's going to make this team better, then I'm willing to play it. Now, I may not get 15 sacks a year from one, one of my best friends. I mean, that was his attitude when he played for the Rams. I mean, he had 16 sacks the year before, and all of a sudden the Rams put him in a position where he wouldn't maximize it, and he had three sacks the next year. But you know what his attitude was throughout the whole thing? Hey, you know what, you pay me one way or the other, and if that's what you want me to do and you think that's what's going to help us, then that's what I'll do. See, it's an attitude of unselfishness that says, you know what, I'm, whatever. If you work in a company, an attitude of unselfishness is, you know what, how can I best make this business a success? Not whether or not it's benefiting me, not whether or not I'll get the next promotion or I'll get the raise or I'll shine, I'll have all the glory. People will know it's me, 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 me. No, it's say, hey, you know what, what can I do in the position that I'm in that will make it better for everybody around me? See, that's an attitude of unselfishness. That's an attitude of humility. And when we cultivate that type of attitude in life, I'll guarantee you that this is a secret of a joyful life. Because what Jesus is saying, contrary to all the philosophies of the world that has ever espoused throughout, uh, throughout humanity, what he's saying is this. Jesus says, be unselfish and humble yourself. Sir Isaac Watts wrote a song, When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, he says, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. You know, I read that, and it sounds so strange in today's world, because, you know, we live in a world of self-promotion. We live in a world where people are promoting ourselves, defending our own rights, taking care of ourselves first. We win by intimidation. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. If you don't speak up for yourself, no one else will. I see it oftentimes in every area of life. I see people are promoting themselves because they're afraid that nobody else will. And there's no joy in their life either because we're always trying to promote ourselves. We're always trying to sell ourselves. We're always trying to make other people look bad so that we look better. And on and on and on it goes. But you know what he says? Hey, you know what? I pour contempt on all that foolish pride. Because if I want to live a joyful life, one of God's little secrets here, and I love how God does these things, but one of his little secrets, he says, if you want a joyful life, then let me tell you something. I'm going to take something that is so foolish to the world that you live in, humility, and I'm going to turn it into the greatest blessing that you'll ever experience. I'm going to take what everybody else says, the wisdom of the world. If you want to get anywhere in life, you've got to promote yourself, sell yourself. You've got to do what no one else will do. It. I'm going to take that foolish philosophy that is wise in the world's eyes, and I'm going to show you for what it really is. It's foolishness in the sight of God. And you know why that is? Because God is in control of all things. We don't have to sell ourselves. Because God is in control of all things. He's saying, you humble yourself. You develop an attitude of humility in life. And I'll take care of everything else. Which leads us to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, if you've got your Bibles, follow along with me. Because there's three things that we're going to consider as we go through this. That has to do with cultivating an attitude of humility. Philippians 2, starting with verse 1. You say, how can I cultivate an attitude of humility? It's the hardest thing in the world to do because we're told to do exactly the opposite every other, every other moment of our life. And I'll tell you what, I, and this is what will happen to you, I'll guarantee it so that you know ahead of time, and not that I'm some kind of prophet or anything, but this is just the way it works. You're going to say to yourself, okay, God, if it's an attitude of humility that you want and it's an attitude of humility that will lead for a joyful life, then I want an attitude of humility. Show me how to cultivate it. And as soon as you begin to try to apply it, you're going to get attacked from 500 different directions telling you how stupid it is what you're trying to do. Just tell you that right up front. 
You're not going to jump in the elevator and pop out, change the humble person. But you have to develop it. And it's going to take a whole bunch of circumstances in your life to be able to develop and cultivate that. But I'll guarantee you this, it's the secret of a joyful life. Philippians 2 says, if, there is any, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There's three truths here as we go through it that we're going to take a look at that have to do with developing an attitude or cultivating an attitude of humility. And we see in the first verse the resources for humility. And basically, let me, let me kind of help you as we go through this so you can do your own Bible studies on your own to see how you go about a process of doing it so that it makes some sense to you. Basically, there's an outline here right in front of us. The resources of, for humility are found here in Philippians 2.1. First of all, what we need to understand is this. When Paul uses the word if, it isn't the word if as we would understand it in English where if it might be and it might not be. Could be, couldn't be, you don't know. If it's the case, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's not the word that's being used. The readers here understood that in this particular language and culture, when a person used the word if, we would translate it today to since. Since it's a fact or since it, it is so. And so as we go through this and look at it, it changes everything about what we're reading. What he's saying is, since these things that I'm going to share with you are a fact, then we can cultivate an attitude of humility. Why? Because of these four things. Look at the first one. He says this. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ. And the New American Standard says, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, or since there is encouragement in Christ, the first point that he makes is this. One, there's consolation in Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean? There's consolation in Christ. Jesus is our example. We are consoled when we want to choose humility because our example was Jesus. We just saw in Matthew 11 that he, was, that he was humble of heart, that he was meek and humble of heart. He was our best example of what it means to be humble as we walk around here on the face of this earth. He's the greatest example of humility that we can find in the Bible, and he encourages us to be humble. In his spirit was meekness, not weakness. In his spirit was strength under control. In his spirit was putting other people first and thinking about other people. And he's saying, since you have such consolation in Christ, then, hey, you know what? You can develop an attitude of humility. Since you have this consolation, meekness is the opposite of revenge. Can I just kind of be blunt here for a second? Some of the most miserable people that I know are people who live their life striving to get even with someone that they feel has wronged them in some way. Striving to get even. 
A parent hurts you while you're growing up and you can't wait to get even someday. A child or children have hurt you, mothers, and it's Mother's Day and it's breaking your heart. And you know what? And if you could, and if you wasn't a mom, somehow or another, you'd like to just get even with them. We play this get even game. You've worked at a company and you were hurt and harmed in some way and you want to go postal, you want to go, you know, you want to get even. You just want to get even. And you live your life consumed with this vengeful spirit of, I'm going to somehow or another make this wrong right. You played on a team and the coach treated you a certain way and you can't wait to get even. You had a certain teacher and you can't wait to get even. You have an ex-spouse, you can't wait to get even. And you play little games all day long until both of you are so exhausted that you're trying to kill each other through the process. Everybody wants to get even with everybody. We all want vengeance. We all want justice. We all want a pound of flesh. And that's what's consuming our lives. Humility is just the opposite. The example or consolation that I have in Jesus Christ is this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says he suffered as an example for us. And you know what? When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he was punched and kicked and spit on, he didn't punch, kick, spit on, and flip people off from the cross. He didn't do it. And you laugh about it, but we do it all the time, and he's supposed to be our example. I want to be like him, then i got to be like him. I don't want to be like Mike. I'd rather be like Jesus. Consolation I have is the encouragement that he gives me when he was reviled and, and, and he was called names and insult and all the rest of the stuff that he didn't insult back. Say, but what did he do? How did he handle it? You know what he did? He entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. Vengeance is mine. Someday I will repay, says the Lord. You want a joyful life? Just give up vengeance. Just give it up. Because if there's a debt to be paid, if there's a price to be paid, then one day God says vengeance is his and he'll take care of it. He'll even it all out. He'll make it all right. And in the meantime, you're trying to do it and it's ruining your life. The consolation I have is, I want to be like Jesus. And he's the greatest example and encouragement of what it means to be humble of any person that you ever want to emulate in life. He's our role model. For to have a proper relationship with others, we must be clothed with humility. You know, First Peter, Peter says this, that we need to gird ourselves for action. The word that he used is an awesome word. It had to do with putting an apron on. And what he was thinking of is we need to gird our minds for action to, to live this kind of humble life. But what it did was it reflected back to the day where Jesus said, wash my feet, or, or you know, that I want to wash your feet. And Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. An act of humility. Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. And he said, no, you're never going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, I don't want nothing to do with you, you proud, contemptuous man. Hey, wash everything. Go for it. Start here, go down there. I don't care. Go wherever you want to go. Here we go. But what the point was, and he used the word gird, which was the same word of putting that apron on, so he was flashing back to what Jesus taught him about how to be humble. And so the consolation was, he's our greatest example. There's great consolation in Jesus as our example for humility. He's our greatest resource. Number two, look at the second resource. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and it says, and since you have comfort from his love. The comfort in God's love, I like that. The comfort of his love allows us to cultivate an attitude of humility. If you and I are filled with God's love, we'll experience humility and like-mindedness with God's people. Humble people care about the feelings of brothers and sisters in Christ. Humble people care about other people around them. And you know why we can care about other people around us? Because we know and have comfort in the fact God loves us. 
I don't have to worry about my rights. I don't have to worry about what anybody cares about me. I don't have to worry about promoting myself. I don't have to worry about any of those things, but I have comfort in the fact that God loves me. Whether anybody else does on the face of the earth, it doesn't matter. God does. You want to have joy in your life? Get a good grasp of that, and boy, I'll tell you what, it'll change your life. But it also means this. If since we have comfort from his love, the word comfort means to be called alongside. It's a word that's used of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it talks about people who are suffering and, we're, and the Holy Spirit is called alongside of us to help us bear under this. It's actually two words, comfort and affection, are used, and, and listen to how this works, it has to do with speech. So what he's saying is this, since we have comfort from God's love, or God's words to us comfort us, in knowing that we can develop an attitude of humility, knowing that God does love us, here's what he's saying about us. If you want to develop an attitude of humility, here's where it starts. It means to speak rightly to another in order to build them up. Wow. You follow this? Some of the most humbling things in the world to do are to go to another person and to say what they need to hear in order to build them up. You gotta lay aside all your pride. You may wanna, you know what? You may wanna tell them and give them a piece of your mind. You may wanna tell them off. You may wanna rip them up. But you know what? Let me, and, and, and let me share something with you, by the way. Anytime that you feel like giving somebody else a piece of your mind, realize this. You don't have a lot left after you do that. <laughs> now, now I know, I know, now I'm looking around and I know some of you better hang on to what you got left. You follow me, sir? So don't be giving anybody a piece of your mind. You ain't got much to work with. Now, I love you, and I'll take that. And now, that has nothing to do with, um, you know, building you up. <laughs> so, <laughs> just truth. That's all it is. All right. So, you, you follow what he's saying? It, it, it's, instead of tearing people down, it means to, to meet with them face-to-face -face for the purpose of counseling them and encouraging them to, so they can go in the right direction. I like that. It says this also. Here's a third resource for humility. Since we have fellowship with the Spirit. Since we have fellowship or the companionship of the Spirit. Fellowship, koinonia. Since we have fellowship with God. It refers to that we as believers have one thing in common. And the one thing that we have in common is this. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that now the Spirit of God comes to indwell you. You're baptized into one body, a body of believers. The Spirit of God now lives within, within you. Ephesians chapter 1, he's given to us as a down payment. John said, Jesus said in John 16, when he left and ascended to heaven, he would send the comforter or the Holy Spirit so that we would feel the presence of God within our life. See, we have the ability to cultivate an attitude of humility because we've got the Spirit of God living within us. He says, if any comfort, and since there is comfort from his love, since there is companionship with the Spirit of God, and as we go through this and look at this, which is marvelous about it is, is that since I have the Spirit of God living within me, I now have the evidence or fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, kindness, goodness, all those things we talked about, and self-control. When I want to avenge a wrong, I have now the ability to control myself and be humble and allow God to do that since it's His job anyway. So I'm not going to do it myself. I like the true story. Carlos Romola was the president, former president of the Philippines, he won an oratorical contest in Manila High School as a young man, and he ignored the congratulations of one of the other contestants. Somebody else came up to him and said, hey, you did a good job, and he blew him off, and he walked away from him. And his father said, why'd you do that? 
He says, you don't understand. Before the contest, he was making fun of me. He was ridiculing me. He was ripping into me. He was telling me that I'd never win. I didn't have a chance. And he, and, and he just tore me apart. And his father looked at him and said, but son, let me just tell you something that your grandfather taught me a long time ago. He says this, the taller the bamboo grows, the lower it bends. He said, remember that always, my boy. The taller the bamboo grows, the lower it will bend. And I like that. The lower it will bend. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. If you want to join your life, you have to be humble. And the last thing he said is this, as resource, he said, and also, since there is tenderness, since there is tenderness and there is compassion. Number four, we have the compassion of Christ for us. And again, it goes back to, hey, you know what? Nobody loves us more than God does. Nobody loves us more than Jesus does. Nobody wants to see us get ahead more than God does. No one wants to see us get our day in the spotlight if we deserve it more than he does. He's the most proud father that ever walked the face of the earth. Some of us as dads sometimes struggle with whether or not our children are getting the just due that, they, that we feel that they deserve. We want to shine the spotlight on them. We want to sell them. We want to promote them. I see that all the time in athletics. And then I begin to realize here that, you know what? God loves my kids more than I ever will. And there's a purpose and a reason for all of it. And there's compassion in Christ in knowing this. And so as we look at this, we need to recognize and understand that we have resources available to us for humility if we want to cultivate an attitude of humility. For these, we see four of them. Consolation of, of Christ, the encouragement that we get from his example. We have comfort of his love, knowing that he loves us more than we'll ever understand or appreciate. We've got companionship with the Spirit, which means the Spirit of God lives within us and gives us self-control so we don't have to avenge those things that we feel are wrong in our life, that God, is, God will avenge it if He feels it's necessary. And we also have compassion of Christ. We can choose an attitude of humility because we've got those resources available to us. Now, the second thing that it leads to is this. The results of it are this. What? Joy. Look at Philippians 2.2. 2. The results of humility are always joy. Then make my joy complete by being what? Like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Philippians 2, 2, that when we choose to have an attitude or cultivate an attitude of humility, we are, end up with joy in our life. Humility promotes harmony, which in turn promotes joy. And if you don't think that's so, then you probably have never lived in a home where maybe a mother or a father or someone was selfish and considered themselves more important than everybody else. When you've got an attitude like that, there is no joy in that household. There is no joy on a team when you've got an individual who all they care about is themselves and their stats and everything else at the expense of the team. If you don't, if you don't have an attitude of uni unity in mind and purpose, of oneness in mind and purpose, you're going to have nothing but, but, but headaches on that, on that team. If you have a business where somebody has to always be the one in the focal point, always the one getting all the attention, and all the one getting the raises, and all the one that's getting all the strokes, and the promotions, and the bonuses, and the raises, and always got to be in the limelight, I'm going to tell you what, you're not going to have much fun at that business. That's just the way that it is. And we need to recognize it and understand that if you've got a child who has to always be the one that's the focal point of your family at the expense of everybody else, then you know there's no harmony in that home. See, the results of harmony, the results of humility, is joy. Some of the greatest teams and businesses and families that I've ever seen, you walk in and you can just feel it. They're all united. They're all one in purpose and in thought. They're all one in putting each other first. They're all one in saying, how can I meet your needs? They're all one in saying, it doesn't matter. Oh, don't worry about me. How is this going to affect you? What can I do for you? How can I, make, how can I change my schedule, honey, to accommodate what you have going on? What can I do for you? 
You want to cultivate an attitude of humility, that's what it all comes down to. And what will happen is you'll have joy in your home because of it. Some of us want joy, but we don't want to pay the price. If I'm first, I'll have all kinds of joy in my life. No, you won't. Because you can't get enough. And you'll never have joy. You'll never have peace. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always want more. It's consumptive. The philosophy of this world is you've got to promote yourself, and the reality of all of it is, is the more you promote yourself, the more empty you're going to be. God says, don't worry about promoting yourself. I'll take care of that. Joy can't survive in, in that type of situation. How is it possible to pull off an attitude of joy? Here's some pra practical application. Are you ready? Reactions of humility are this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility in mind, with, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me just share with you as we look at this three ways that you can apply. You want to develop and cultivate an attitude of humility? Here's how you do it. Number one, you'll realize this. Or you know what? Sometimes we even have to do a self-exam. Am I really a humble person? You know, you almost feel like it's prideful in asking whether you're humble. But if you're going to develop and cultivate an attitude of humility, you're going to have to ask yourself the question, how do I demonstrate that I am what God wants me to be? How, can I, how do I know that I am a humble person? And this is not saying, well, because I want to be. There has to be some evidence of it. Number one, the first evidence is this. My ins insensitivity toward others begins to change. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We all have a natural tendency to promote ourselves and to be insensitive to other people. You know, one of the things that really concerns me is that we live in a world where somehow or another we've bought into the philosophy that in order to promote yourself, you have to tear people down around you. We've developed a philosophy in our business that's simply this. We will never badmouth anybody who competes against us in our industry. Just won't do it. And the reason for it's simple. I see people all the time, they tear apart everybody else thinking somehow that whatever's left is best. And what they're telling people is this, choose us because we're the best of the worst. That's what they're saying. I, I, there was an athlete the other day in the paper, he's down in the minor leagues, his quote was this, I can name a hundred players in the majors that can't do the job that I'll do. He's waiting to get called back up to the majors to play baseball again. He's in the minor league and he's ripping apart the fact that I can name a hundred people that I'm better than. And you have to ask yourself a question, well, if you really are, why are they there and you're where you are? Duh. You know, you can believe whatever you want, but I'll tell you what, you know what that is right here? That is vain conceit, brother. That is vain conceit. See, now I know some of you are thinking, you're on, yeah, but you know what? You have to have that confidence. I'm not talking about confidence. I'm not talking about an assurance of who you are as a person. I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm talking about is vain conceit. Vain conceit is I've got to tear everybody else around me down so that I somehow float to the top and look better. Hey, you know what? That's not how it's going to happen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We don't have to rip other people apart so that somehow we look better. We can consider ourselves better, consider others better than ourselves. Biblical humility causes insensitivity to disappear. Somehow it just disappears. Second thing is this, the importance of others begins to change. You see that? But in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. More important, the New American Standard says, but, 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 do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more important than yourselves. 
You want to develop an attitude of humility, I'll tell you what. You say, Lord, I want an attitude of humility. Man, you will be, you will be tested beyond belief to see if that's really what you want. I'm studying to put this together on Friday afternoon. It's all done. Now I'm ready to go out for a run. I'm all dressed. I'm ready to go for a run. My wife comes to me and says, the place that our daughter took our car just called, which is in Santa Ana, off the 55 freeway on a Friday night, and they say to her, you have to come down in the next 30 minutes or an hour to pick it up because we close and it'll be closed all weekend and she can't get the car. And my daughter was working until 7 and the car is there and now it's 5 o'clock. I am dressed to go, but not to go pick up a car. And I'm like, why, why is that my problem? Good one, huh? And, uh, and somehow or another, it became something of like our situation to try to resolve. And it's like, okay, we'll just call the guy back and tell him. Just, you can just pay, well, because they want to pay you. We'll just pay over the phone. Well, they don't take credit cards over the phone anymore. Well, whose problem is that? So anyway, make a long story short, I selfishly said, well, I'm just going to go for a run. So then when I'm running, the whole time I'm thinking, oh, man, we got to go pick up this car. I got to go pick up the car. Because I'm going over the outline of what I'm going to teach on as I'm running down the street going, oh, yeah, do nothing from selfish ambition. Hey, where are you on? Oh, I'm out for a run. Hey, well, with humility of mind, let you consider others more important than yourself. Okay, I will, I will, but like, I can just get in four miles. Okay, well, all right. so I run back as fast as I can. And I had this whole attitude of humility now. It's like, I'm thinking, okay, Ryan, go on and tell your mom that we'll go head down and we'll pick up the car. Well, they're getting in the car, and she goes, hey, good news, we don't have to go pick it up. They said, if we just promise to drop a check in the slot, we can pick it up later. Well, now, this is great. What kind of illustration am I going to use now? <laughs> just and I can be a selfish guy, I guess. And that's a problem, isn't it? See, we all struggle with that. We all run into that, and you don't even see it and realize how selfish it really is until you begin to realize, you know what? Man, it's not natural, is it? It is not a natural thing to consider others more important than yourself. It just isn't. It may mean you have to go somewhere. It may mean you have to do something that you just, first choice, first 10, 15, 20 choices wouldn't be that that's what you do. But you do it because you consider others more important than yourself. Man, I'll tell you what, there's some lessons to learn. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests. I like that. You know what God's saying? We don't have a problem taking care of our own needs, do we? It comes pretty natural. I know what I need, and I know when I need it, and I know what I need to do, and that's what I'm going to do. He goes, now, I know that you know how to take care of yourself, but also, you know what? You need to take care of what's important to other people, too. Wow. See, you know what? Stop and think about something here. The people who are celebrating to, since today is Mother's Day, the people who have the ultimate joy in celebrating Mother's Day are the people who have had a mother or an influence in their life that realizes how true this is. To consider others as more important than yourself. You know, most kids growing up will never know that until the day they have children and realize what a sacrifice it is to meet the needs of other people. One of the best lessons that we learn are the lessons that God teaches us through our children. You know, I like what one man writes. Listen to this. He says, now you need to understand the kind of guy I am. 
I like my shoes spit shined rather than stepped on and scuffed up. I like my clothes hanging in the closet in an orderly and neat manner rather than drooled on and wrinkled on. And I really like my milk in a glass on the table and not on the floor. I especially like a clean car with no fingerprints on the windows and no leftover school assignments spread across the floorboards. So what does God do to help broaden my horizons and assist me in seeing how selfish I am? Very simple. He gives me four busy kids who step on shoes, wrinkle clothes, spill milk, lick car windows, and drop sticky candy on the carpet. He says you haven't lived until you've walked barefooted across the floor in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and stomp down full force on a jack or a couple of those little Lego landmines. So I'll tell you this, you learn real quick about your own level of selfishness when you have children. I like that. I like that a lot. Let's kind of wrap it all up with, with this thought. Go through it as you have some time this week and read the rest of this passage from verses 5 through 11. Because the example that we have and we'll look at next time and the next couple of times, but this example says that we need to have this attitude. What was that attitude? An attitude of humility? It says we need to have this attitude which was also in Jesus Christ. An attitude of humility. An attitude of putting other people first. An attitude of not worrying about ourselves all the time, not self-promotion, not all those things, but just promoting other people. And the problem with choosing humility is, you know, I, I need to make sure that this is very clear. Choosing humility is not equated with losing one's uniqueness or becoming of no value. It's not beating yourself and belittling yourself in front of other people. It's not that at all. Some of the greatest people who ever walked the face of the earth were humble people. And I'll give you an illustration, an example of that. In his biography that he writes, Douglas Sethole Freeman writes about General Lee. Robert E. Lee, the commander-in-chief of the Confederate troops during the Civil War, was a man of great humility. And he summarized this one incident that took place in his life to characterize the kind of man that this man was. He writes these words. He says, Of humility and submission was born a spirit of self-denial that prepared him for the hardships of the war and still more for the dark destitution that followed it. He says this self-denial was in some sense the spiritual counterpart of the social self-control his mother had inculcated in his boyhood days and it grew in power throughout his life. He says his own misfortunes typified the fate of the Confederacy and its adherents. Through it all, his spirit of self-denial met every demand upon it, and even after he went to Washington College and had an income on which he could live e easily, he continued to deny himself as an example to his people. Had his life been epitomized in one sentence of the book that he read so often, it would have been these words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And if one, only one of all the myriad incidents of his stirring life had to be selected to typify his message as a man to the young Americans who stood in hushed awe that rainy October morning as their parents wept at the passing of the Southern Arthur, who, who, who would hesitate in selecting just this one incident? says it occurred in Northern Virginia, probably on his last visit there. A young mother brought her baby to him to be blessed, and he took the infant in his arms, and he looked at it, and then looked at her, and slowly said to the mother, Teach him he must deny himself. Teach him he must humble himself. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives great grace to the humble. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. Teach him he must deny himself. The secret of a joyful life is self-denial. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that this message could be on a day that we celebrate mothers as they have learned this truth of self-denial. God, and I just feel so sorry for many of us who are being led to believe that the secret of a joyful life is promoting yourself first. I think of all the mothers who are paying a price today because they bought into that lie and for many years their own needs and their own desires and their own wants came first at the expense of the needs and the desires of their family. And God, because of that, there's a little bit of a strain, there's not much harmony, there's no unity. And God, help us to see how, how devastating that philosophy is. Help all of us as men and women to realize that if we're to have joyful lives, that we must not promote ourselves. We must humble ourselves. And you tell us that you'll exalt us in the proper time. Again, it all comes back that we can have joy knowing that you're in total control, that you see all things. God, help us to humble ourselves before others and to put others and consider others as more important than ourselves, not because we want them to respond, not because we want them to notice, not because we hope that one day they'll come back and even say thank you, but just because it's the right thing to do, to live a life of humility so that we can be more like Jesus. And as we're more like him, then we can experience the joy that was set before him, who despised the pain and the cross and suffered all those things, the Bible says so that he can enjoy or for the joy that was set before him. God, we just thank you for that. And we just praise you for this attitude of humility that it's a choice. May we continue to choose it on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.